Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 24th, 2015. This will be a semi-normal-ish episode of Fighting for the Faith, although we will be uh, doing some more in-depth study into the New Apostolic Reformation. Think of it as NAR Part 2. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually check to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers Self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles, um, uh, prophetic end times wingnuts, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose study materials we need to be studying instead of God's word, you know, to see if what they teach actually squares with what God's word says or if they're to see if they're actually twisting God's word scratching itching ears and uh, well generally uh, teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach now as i noted at the beginning of the program we will have a semi normalish episode but we will for sure uh, be uh, looking at the New Apostolic Reformation with more depth today, kind of keying in on uh, the dominionism aspect and the uh, elder statesman of the NAR, that would be C. Peter Wagner, and uh, some of the ideas that he teaches. Now, I don't think in this program we can do it full justice, but you'll note that uh, you know many of you have already emailed me and said, you know, Chris, after that first installment uh, on the NAR, you're seeing the NAR concepts everywhere. That's because they are everywhere. NAR has become very, very pervasive, and it's a very dangerous doctrine and teaching and movement, if you would. So since that's what we're going to be doing today, with, I think we need to get right to it. That requires us to do this. Chiefman, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. And laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. Before each night is done, they're 
then we'll be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The pinky and the brain. Yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overflow the earth. The pinky. They're pinky and the brain, 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 brain. All right. Oh, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to get right to it. We're going to start off with um, an article, an article written by C. Peter Wagner. Uh, you can find this at charismanews.com. And it was written on August 24th, 2011, entitled The New Apostolic Reformation is not a cult. The New Apostolic Reformation is not a cult. And he says some fascinating things in this article. In fact, worth me reading part of it out. Let me read here. C. Peter Wagner writes, uh, Surprisingly, the New Apostolic Reformation has recently become a topic of discussion in the political media. I noticed some mention of it in connection with Sarah Palin's run for vice president. Yeah, this is dating this article. Uh, but I considered it relatively insignificant. Then more talk of the NAR surfaced around Michelle Bachman, but it soared to a new level when Rick Perry entered the race for the Republican nomination for president in August. This would be August 2011. Uh, the best I can discern, the NAR has become a tool in the hands of certain liberal opponents of the conservative candidates designed to discredit them on the basis of their friendship with certain Christian leaders supposedly affiliated with the NAR. Now, I want to point something out here. I mean, Rick Perry hangs out with people like Cindy Jacobs and Rick Joyner. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, just call me old-fashioned, but uh, if, uh, you're, if, if your uh, Republican candidate is a... Um, an NAR type hanging out with um, complete heretics like that, yeah, I'll, I'll pass. I'll pass altogether. But um, so uh, Wagner goes on to write, he says, what is the NAR? The NAR is definitely not a cult, he says. Uh, those who affiliate with it believe in the Apostles' Creed and all standard classic statements of Christian doctrine it will surprise some to know that the NAR embraces the largest non-Catholic segment of the world uh, of world Christianity. It is also the fastest growing segment, the only segment of Christianity currently growing faster than the world population and faster than Islam. Christianity is booming now in the global south, which includes South Saharan, Africa, Latin America, and large parts of Asia. Most of the new churches in the global south even include many which belong to denominations would comfortably fit the NAR template. The NAR represents the most radical change in the way of doing church since the Protestant Reformation. Did you catch that? Yeah, okay. This is not a doctrinal change. We adhere to the major tenets of the Reformation, the authority of Scripture, justification by faith, the priesthood of all believers, but the quality of church life, the governance of the church and the worship, the theology of prayer, the missional goals, and the optimistic vision for the future, yeah, like we're going to take over the world, um, and other features constitute quite a change from traditional Protestantism. And I would say quite a change from historic Orthodox Christianity. And add to that the fact that uh, you know they have apostles. Uh, the NAR, uh, C. Peter Wagner writes, is not an organization. No one can join or carry a card. It has no leader. I've been called the founder, but this is not the case. One reason I might 
be seen as an intellectual uh, godfather is that I might have been the first to observe the movement, give it, uh, give it a, a name to it, and describe its characteristics as I saw them. Uh, when this began to come together through my research in 1993, I was professor of church growth at Fuller Theological Seminary, where I taught for 30 years. And that's the reason why I see Peter Wagner is Rick Warren's doctoral advisor. The roots of the NAR go back to the beginning of the African Independent Church Movement in 1900, the Chinese House Church Movement beginning in 1976, the U.S. Independent Charismatic Movement beginning in the 1970s, and the Latin American Grassroots Church Movement beginning around the same time. I was neither the founder nor a member of any of those movements. I was simply a professor who observed that they were the fastest-growing churches in their respective regions, and that they had a number of common characteristics. And then the subject heading entitled, Concerns About the NAR. If the critics are using openness to NAR as a slur against conservative political candidates, they obviously need to verbalize what could be wrong with NAR in the first place. You know, for instance, uh, you know, apostolic governance, the apostles are dead, and the uh, the requirements for somebody to be apostle are clearly laid out in Acts chapter 1, and ain't nobody nowhere know how can uh, fill that office to this day. So in the section entitled Apostolic Government Governance, C. Peter Wagner writes, as I mentioned before, this is probably the most radical change. Uh, I take literally St. Paul's words that Jesus at his ascension into heaven, quote, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints uh, for the work of ministry. And indeed, did Jesus did give some to be apostles. And that was 12. And there are no more apostles. Ain't no apostles now. So for you guys to come along and say, oh, we're taking Paul's words, you know, literally. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that uh, his words were meant to be taken literally uh, but, you know, Acts chapter 1 is meant to be taken literally regarding who, you know, who is qualified to be an apostle. And since nobody's qualified now to be an apostle, yeah, ain't no apostles. So anybody claiming to be one isn't. And I notice also this fact that uh, many of the people that C. Peter Wagner has anointed and ordained to be apostles, uh, including Todd Bentley, are basically uh, made up of the most dubious group of people within the visible church, bunch of charlatans, false teachers, false prophets, you know, who have false miracles and are out there deceiving people and cannot rightly handle a biblical text to save their lives. The other thing about the uh, New Apostolic Reformation is they all claim to be receiving direct revelation from God. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, uh, Scripture's sufficient, and even Scripture says so. Um, in the text that says this is uh, found, by the way, in Second uh, Timothy, Second Timothy chapter three. Here's how this reads: It says, "All Scripture, this is verse sixteen, is breathed out, or theonustos, is uh, you know inspired, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work." Yeah, that's right. Scripture is all you need as a Christian to be equipped for every good work that God would call you to do. So, yeah, the folks there at the uh, in the New Apostolic Reformation, um yeah, they they ain't hearing from God although they claim to be. They they ain't apostles yet, they claim to be. Uh, and sitting there saying, "Oh, we take uh, you know, Ephesians 4, you know, 
Literally. Well, yeah, there's one thing about taking it literally. I mean, it sounds so pious when you say it that way. But the thing is, is that I take Acts 1 literally. And Acts 1 literally lays out the uh, the qualifications to be apostle, which rules everybody currently living out. So you kind of get the idea here. Now, I put all of that together. You know, I read all of that out and kind of gave you the framework so that as we go into uh, the teaching of a C. Peter Wagner, uh, then you will be able to at least, you know, kind of have some kind of a touch point as to what the what the issues are. And so with that, we're going to uh, play a soundbite from Cindy Jacobs uh, where she praises C. Peter Wagner and explains um, C. Peter Wagner's role in her uh, life and in her, you know, formation as a um, apostle. Here we go. Every time, but it's so true. It is my privilege to introduce Dr. C. Peter Wagner, my mentor, the father to so many of us Christian leaders in the world, it's also myself, many people that God has allowed us to go around the world. He has written 72 books that are in languages across the face of the earth. He has started whole movements. I could name movement after movement. He has a gift of when Christian leaders are not being received. He just stands alongside of them. And Peter, you can't hear this part, but I think there's a book written, um, the 360-something most influential people in the whole world, in the whole world, not Christian leaders, and he is in that book. Amen. And so we are so honored. He's the founding president of Global Harvest Ministries and networks strategic groups of apostles, province, deliverance ministries, and educators to equip the body of Christ through conferences, seminars, literature, and other media. He serves as the chancellor of the Wagner Leadership Institute with seven schools in the U.S. Oh, this has got to be old. There's many, many schools around the world. Maybe you want to talk about that. He has he invited John Wimber to come to Fuller Theological Seminary that began a movement of healing that is mainstreamed across the face of the earth. We are privileged and we are honored. I want you to stand up to receive one of the mightiest men of God on the face of the earth, Dr. Peter Wagner. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're on God TV. Thank you very much for that warm welcome. All right. So you kind of get the idea. It gets a warm welcome there. Um, yeah. Interesting. Uh, quite a few leaders. That was at a leadership conference of the uh, leaderless NAR. Fascinating thing to uh, be noting there. Uh, next uh, next soundbite. Um, we're going to listen uh, you know, quite extensively here as... Um, C. Peter Wagner, it, it, literally, it sounds like he's separating the NAR from Christianity, or at least making a huge uh, distinction between it and Christianity, at least historically understood. Here, listen in. 
Okay, now, they're, 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 uh, the first, first of all, I want to repeat something. You don't have to write it down because you already have it in your notes. But I want to remind you that the new apostolic reformation is the most radical change in the way of doing church since the Protestant Reformation. That's what we're, that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're springing off into the 21st century. So the NAR is the most radical change since the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. With. And um, well, one thing that I, uh, that I want everybody to understand, and, and Global Awakening is a part of this, and I'm not trying to say this arrogantly, but I'm trying to, to, for us to get the movement of the Spirit of God um, in the world today, and that is that what the Spirit of God is bringing about in the New Apostolic Reformation is the largest and the fastest growing block of Christianity around the world. It is, it is very large. Now, what we know, we even know more about it now than we did when the World Christian Encyclopedia came out. But in David Barrett and the World Christian Encyclopedia, which was the most intense research project ever done on the World Christian Movement, three volumes, three huge volumes with three columns on each page. I mean, huge. But, in fact, I have my, my World Christian Encyclopedia. Uh, I, there's so much research in it that I wondered how much there was, so I took it and put it on the bathroom scale. It weighs 20 pounds. 20 pounds of research. That's a lot of research. <laughs> and, um, but he divides all world Christianity into mega blocks. And um, so there are over 2 billion Christians in the world. But here are the, you won't have time to write all these downs. But just, just, I just want to give you the idea. It's nothing to take notes on. The Roman, you have the Roman Catholic. You have the Anglican or Episcopalian, we call it in America. You have the Orthodox, different branches of the Orthodox Church. You have the Protestant, and this is sometimes called Evangelical as well. And so this is where the Pentecostal, this is where the Assemblies of God would be in this one of David Barrett's mega blocks. And then you have the, the marginal Christians, which I, I tend to leave out because this is the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the, the, that kind of cult, what we think is cultic. But he concludes it in the whole thing. And then you have the independent or post <laughs> he hasn't Jack Hayford hasn't seen this yet. <laughs> he still calls it post denominational neo apostolic that's, that's the word at new apostolic. And um, he has that. Now if you look at these, naturally the Roman Catholic is the biggest mega block, but then you'll notice that this um, uh, the the what I would call I call no or neo, that's new Apostolic uh, is the largest non-Catholic mega block in the world, and this is as of about ten years ago. It's more now. It's it's the uh, the, uh, the updated statistics are more than that now, and and of all the mega blocks, including the Catholic, the New Apostolic is the only mega block growing faster than the world population and faster than Islam. So the New Apostolic Reformation is growing faster than Islam. Yeah, that doesn't exactly um, make me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. In fact, it kind of creeps me out, if you ask me. Uh, but uh, we're going to continue to move along. So you kind of got the idea. He definitely separates his movement from Christianity and goes on and really makes the point that uh, you know they're growing faster than Islam and uh, that's kind of a you know a fascinating th way to look at these things, if you would. 
Next up, C. Peter Wagner, um, he's going to be promoting the new apostolic era of warfare, which, by the way, uh, the theology of warfare is one of the important doctrines within the NAR. Here's uh, C. Peter Wagner to explain. And I think that is completing, that is putting the body of Christ in the place where God can best use it. Is it? 예수 그리스도의 교회는 하나님께서 교회를 쓰실 수 있는 그런 위치에 와 있는 것입니다. And now God can trust us with assignments of spiritual warfare that he was not able to entrust us before. Uh, yeah, you're sitting there going, what are you listening to? Yeah, I know. I, I don't know exactly. Uh, we're listening to him uh, teaching at a seminar that was held in Seoul, South Korea. In 1997. So apparently, um, because of this NAR uh, thing, uh, God now is entrusting us with uh, spiritual warfare assignments that he couldn't trust the church with before. R- really? So that's why... Spiritual warfare is so important now. 그러므로 이 영적인 전쟁이 지금 중요한 것입니다. Probably 10 years ago we wouldn't we would not have had a seminar on spiritual warfare. 10년 전만 하더라도 이런 영적 전쟁 세미나는 상상할 수가 없었을 것입니다. Because God hadn't brought the church to the place where he could trust it with that. 왜냐하면 uh, so we couldn't do spiritual warfare, you know, 10 years ago because God hadn't brought it to the place where he can trust the church. What is he talking about? But now we do. And so number one says the reality of spiritual warfare. Yeah, so... um. <laughs> How is this supposed to prove that the NAR is not a cult? Uh, new language, new ways of doing church, uh, at new apostles, and apparently new revelations you know, pertaining to spiritual warfare. You know, God couldn't trust us before, but he finally brought us to the point where he can trust us uh, regarding um, spiritual warfare. I mean, just bizarre. Now, in this next one, he's going to be talking about how uh, his God has established uh, the uh, church government in uh, 2001 to engage in spiritual war and uh, to wealth. Here again is C. Peter Wagner. Year 2001 opened the second apostolic age. The government of the church is now in place. We're aligning with apostles and prophets. And this, th- this war that we're in, that we have talked about, has two fronts. It has a spiritual front and it has a natural front. This is spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. That's the, that's the spiritual front, but we better not stay there. We better bring it down to the natural front. And that's what all the dancing us as Robert's going to talk about. We're going to talk about bringing it to earth. And this is the new cutting edge for this generation. God is revealing powerful concepts for us, which I don't have time to explain. So So new direct revelation. God is revealing powerful concepts for us. How is this not like a cult again? You'll know what I'm talking about, and if you don't, you're going to hear about them real soon. Or get my book um, called Dominion. We're all out now. I even had to give my copy away. But uh, get my book uh, Dominion, and um, a lot of this is spelled out. But one of the things God has given us is the 7M mandate. 
regarding the seven mountains. No time to explain it. He's given us the teaching of the church in the workplace, which Chuck uh, referred to uh, during the ordination, and this is extremely important. He's given us the he's given us the teaching of having of of knowing that he's placed apostles in the workplace, not just. Uh, in the uh, nuclear so God has given them the revelation that we now have apostles in the workplace again how is this not like a cult again church and he's also given us revelation of the crucial role of wealth we will not see sustained transformation of cities or nations without controlling vast amounts of kingdom wealth those are carefully chosen statements vast amounts of kingdom wealth so apparently uh, we're supposed to, so yeah, so we're supposed to have vast amounts of kingdom wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you kind of get the point there. Um, yeah, this is a very strange and peculiar uh, set of doctrines, although he claims they're not a cult, yet never in the history of Christianity has Christianity believed these doctrines. Where do they get them from? Well, they claim they've received them via direct revelation from God himself. Well, we'll uh, listen to more of C. Peter Wagner on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, more C. Peter Wagner and the new Apostolic Reformation. Hour number two will actually review an entire lecture slash sermon of his. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Deep in the half Australian wilderness and also the typhoid-infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. 
Now, gentlemen, the hour is dire. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, Mommy, Mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have, in my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. Huzzah! Woo-hoo. No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, it says this. With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain <laughs> Worthington, uh, a book of uh, approaching! Blasted! Perkins, get your act together and start reading from the book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Uh, which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the uh, Scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The, the Circle One. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Are you sure? Pretty sure. <laughs> Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Packins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it's a, the, the Hibuku tribe. They now have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the, uh, this is Sun Sandstone prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. Doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, no debts. Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they, 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 they now, now have, 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 impossible. And that, children, is where I'll stop for tonight. Aw, uh, Mom, it was just getting good. Aw, uh, won't you please... Please tell us more. I can't tell you any more tonight. It's past your bedtime, and tomorrow is a school day. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. 
Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that God did not reveal to uh, certain Christian leaders this detail about taking over the world through the seven mountains. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, couple of quick notes. Um, number one, I wanted to let everybody know that uh, we have firmed up the uh, the dates for the 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference. Uh, we will uh, open it up for registration in a few weeks, but uh, save the date because we're only going to limit this to the first 150 people who register. So it, it, this is first come, first serve, limited to the first 150. And the dates are August 12th and 13th, and the conference will be held at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, where I happen to be serving, which is about 20 minutes north here of the city of Grand Forks. So, uh, yeah, again, it's at uh, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, August 12th and 13th of 2016. And uh, hope that uh, if you want to attend, that you can. Uh, but uh, save the date now. We will open up registration in a few weeks and it will be limited to the first, um, like I said, first 150 people to register. 
the Elijah List uh, Challenge, the uh, the the uh, the game that they've been playing. It is the next clue is up, by the way, and uh, the Elijah List Challenge clue is. Uh, number four is the whoever this uh, culprit in the pulpit pulpit is. This person plagiarizes other people from the Elijah list and from around the internet. From uh, yeah, so yeah, so go to C three Church Watch uh, if you want more information on that uh, particular challenge. I think that uh, would uh, be helpful. But uh, we're going to continue on now with uh, our uh, look at the teachings of C. Peter Wagner, and this next one is him talking about advanced warfare, advanced uh, warfare, and uh, talking about how it's prayer. And you're going to also hear one of the people that he has strongly influenced, if you would. And so here's uh, C. Peter Wagner talking about uh, advanced warfare. Here we go. Let me give you at least one more uh, point. We must reject anti-war movements must reject anti-war movements. And um, I, ha- I hate to report it. Well, I hate to report that, that, um, that one of the things that's slowing us down in, in uh, the war in Iraq is anti-war movements. I mean, I remember Vietnam, I, you know, don't you? I mean, the, I, I mean you know who helped? Because who helped, that's that was the first war we ever lost. You know what helped us lose that war? Jane Fonda. And her aunt, now she's changed back. She's been converted and everything. So apparently we need we need to be against uh, anti-war movements within the body of Christ as far as anti-spiritual warfare movements. So if you're an anti-spiritual warfare person, yeah, you're just as bad as Jane Fonda. But, I mean, some of the influence that she had in the anti-war movement, she didn't help America. She helped the enemy. See? And, well, yeah, that's true. Um. And, and we can't put up with this in, in spiritual warfare. We can't. Uh, yeah, no, no spiritual Jane Fonda's allowed. It's like, what are you talking about? With anti-war movements, and um, um, it's uh, there are some. I hate to report it. There are some people who are against uh, war, and um, I think that should stop. I think the whole body of Christ needs to get on the page that we are in. War. There are some people who, who are against strategic level spiritual warfare. Remember what I said that is? Principalities and powers. And there are some people who are against ground level spiritual warfare. Casting out demons. I mean, they, they won't admit that, but, but they, they will not allow any church in their whole denomination to have a deliverance ministry. Well, I'll get to that later. Let me, let me take these one. Yeah, uh, there's good reason for you to not have deliverance ministries. Because uh, deliverance and inner healing is not a biblical practice the way these people do it. And the other thing is is that Christians can't be possessed by demons. Let me just explain the strategic level and then the ground level and what the anti-war movements have. And the reason I'm, I'm saying this and putting it on the DVD is because I think it needs to be exposed. We, we, are, we, we, we can't just go along to, and pretend that everything in the body of Christ is okay because it's not okay in this in this particular area. We're not. There are people who don't. I can't. I can't help but thinking that the enemy is encouraging them. All right. So we've got the enemy encouraging uh, anti-spiritual warfare movements, and you you can become a spiritual Jane Fonda. I don't even know what any of that means. 
next one, we're going to find out what uh, his theology of war, what, what what does war look like? Well, here's C. Peter Wagner to explain more here. Incidentally, Saturday night, I watched a very important football game. 제가 이 토요일 저녁에 축구 경기를 봤습니다. Korea was playing United Arab Emirates. 예, UAE와 예, 축구 경기를 봤다는 겁니다. And I understand that the team from United Arab Emirates all went to the mosque to pray to Allah that they would win the game. 여러분 이 경기를 하기 전에 UAE 선수들이 전부 다이 용산에 있는 회교 사원에 들어가서 기도한 걸 아십니까? And then I saw the picture of the on the television the picture of the coach of the Korean team who was praying. 그리고 저는 TV에서 차범근 감독이 기도하는 것을 봤습니다. What's it, what was his name? Cha? Cha. Cha. Coach Cha. <laughs> and he was not praying to Allah. He was praying to God. 차범근 감독은 알라에게 기도한 것이 아니고 여호와 하나님께 기도했습니다. And so I was watching that game with Dr. Cho. 그러므로 저는 조영기 목사님과 아주 관심을 가지고 이 경기를 지켜봤습니다. And Dr. Cho said, "This is spiritual warfare." 조영기 목사님이 말씀하시기를. Uh, what? <laughs> spiritual warfare over a football match. Okay. 말로 영적인 전쟁이요. And God had the victory. 하나님이 승리하셨습니다. Korea has a very good team. 한국은 참 훌륭한 팀을 가지고 있습니다. <웃음> But it's different from real warfare. 그러나 그것은 경기죠. 전쟁은 아닙니다. Because football is a game. 왜냐하면 축구는 어디까지나 게임이기 때문에. The World Cup is very important. World Cup은 중요합니다. But only one team wins. 그러나 한 팀만이 우승을 할수 있습니다. The other teams lose. 다른 팀들은 다 패배합니다. And nobody dies. 그리고 죽는 사람은 없습니다. But not in warfare. 그러나 영적인 전쟁에서는 그렇지 않습니다. Warfare is a matter of life and death. 영적인 전쟁이야말로 죽느냐 사느냐의 문제입니다. Warfare is much more important than the World Cup. 영적인 전쟁이 월드컵보다도 중요합니다. And much, much more dangerous. 그리고 월드컵보다도 더 무섭습니다. And so that is why we call it spiritual warfare. 그러므로 우리는 전쟁이란 말을 쓰지 않을 수가 없습니다. We are in a war. 우리는 지금 전쟁 중입니다. Now the question is, how do we do it? 그런데 문제는 이 전쟁을 어떻게 싸우느냐는 것일 것입니다. How do we fight the war? 어떻게 이 전쟁을 싸울 수가 있습니까? Eventually, I'm going to make a list of the different weapons. 에, 이 여러 가지 이, 이 전쟁의 무기에 대해서 제가 여러분에게 말씀을 드릴 텐데요. But first, I'm going to lay some groundwork. 그러나 먼저 이 기본적인 것부터 말씀드리려고 합니다. And we need to remind ourselves that when we do spiritual warfare, Our weapons are not human weapons; they're spiritual weapons. 여러분 이 영적 전쟁을 할때 우리가 쓰는 무기는 인간의 무기, 혈육의 무기, 육신의 무기가 아니고 
영적인 무기라는 사실을 기억하시기를 바랍니다. So let's read these verses. 2 Corinthians 10:3-4. 그러므로 고린도 후서 10장 3절 4절 말씀을 같이 봉독하실까요? 우리가 육체에 있어 행하나 육체대로 싸우지 아니하노니 우리의 싸우는 병기는 육체에 속한 것이 아니오 오직 하나님 앞에서 견고한 진을 파하는 강력이라. I believe, now here, if you can fill in the blank here, I believe that our basic activity is prayer. 여기 괄호 안에 채우십시다. 우리의 기본적인 행동은 기도입니다. So fill in prayer in the blank, that's what they're doing? Yeah. Okay. 기도. If we think of warfare, I think of prayer as like the, the cannon through which all the other uh, weapons are fired. 제가 이 기도에 대해서 생각할 때 무엇을 연장하냐면 대포를 생각합니다. 대포를 통해서 이 포탄을 보내는 것과 같으니까요. All the weapons of spiritual warfare come through prayer. 모든 영적인 무기들은 이 기도라는 대포, 포신을 통해서 날아갑니다. That's why they're spiritual. Our weapons are spiritual. They're not carnal. 그러므로 Yeah, but our offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 이 모든 무기들은 영적인 거라는 겁니다. Ephesians 6 is the most detailed chapter on spiritual warfare that we have in the whole New Testament. 이 신약 성경에서 영적인 전쟁에 대해서 가장 구체적으로 다루고 있는 구절이 바로 에베소서 6장의 말씀입니다. And Ephesians 6 tells us about the armor of God and all that. 그 하나님의 전신 갑주를 다루고 있습니다. But Ephesians 6:18 says that we should be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. 에베소서 6장 18절에 보면 모든 기도와 간구로 하되 무시로 성령 안에서 기도하고라고 말씀하고 있는데 and then all the rest of the chapter of Ephesians 6 is about prayer and prayer and prayer. 그리고 그 나머지 6장의 나머지 부분들은 전부 다 기도에 대해서 말씀하고 있습니다. 기도, 기도. So prayer is our basic activity. 그러므로 기도가 우리의 가장 기본적인 이, 이, 이 행동이라는 것입니다. Now I think our basic attitude and fill in these next two blanks. 그리고 그 다음 괄호를 채울 것 같으면 우리의 기본적인 자세는 is faith, 믿음과 and obedience, 순종입니다. Now, if you think that the type of prayer he's uh, promoting, you know, is us asking God to, you know, humbly, you know, humbly help us, you know, in the midst of demonic oppression and things like that, engaging. No, that's not how New Apostolic Reformation prayer uh, goes down. In fact, if you really want to get an, an idea or a feel for how NAR type prayer against demons and things like that occurs... You get a heavy dose of that in the new movie War Room, by the way. Um, but uh, now to kind of help us kind of fill in some of the missing data, we're going to listen to a portion of C. Peter Wagner's interview with uh, National Public Radio. And uh, I think this will help kind of fill in what's going on with this you know, spiritual warfare, taking over things kind of stuff, and how you know, they battle demons in their prayer. Warfare is a big part of their theology. So without any further ado, here's uh, C. Peter Wagner's uh, appearance on uh, National Public Radio. Here we go. 
This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. In August, Texas Governor Rick Perry held a prayer rally called The Response. Several of that rally's organizers and speakers are part of an emerging movement of charismatic Christians called the New Apostolic Reformation, or the NAR. After the rally, Rachel Tabachnik joined us on Fresh Air to discuss the NAR, which she has reported on for the website Talk to Action. She said that as part of the NAR's belief in dominionism, they want to take control of the institutions of society and government. She also talked about their belief in demons and their practice of spiritual warfare against demons. After our interview with Tabachnik, we got in touch with C. Peter Wagner. He's one of the leaders of the New Apostolic Reformation. He named the movement and has written books about it. Leaders in this movement are considered apostles and prophets gifted by God for the role. Wagner is the former presiding apostle of the International Coalition of Apostles. He recently retired as president of Global Harvest Ministries. For 30 years, he was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary School of World Missions. We're pleased that he accepted our invitation to describe the NAR and its mission in his own words. Dr. Wagner, welcome to Fresh Air. Um, The new apostolic reformation is very large, but few people outside it know about it. And few people outside it know of you. However, there is a video of you giving a speech, and the video went viral. So I thought we'd start with that, because for a lot of people, this is the only thing they know about you. And in this video, you're talking about the emperor of Japan having sex with a sun goddess and how that harmed Japan. So I'm going to play this short video excerpt, and then we'll talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, you heard that right. So this is my guest, C. Peter Wagner. Japan, as a nation, is one of the nations of the world which has consciously, openly invited national demonization. The sun goddess visits him in person and has sexual intercourse with the emperor. Oh, really? It's a very, very powerful thing. So the emperor becomes one flesh with the sun goddess. And that's an invitation for the sun goddess to continue to demonize the, uh, the, the whole nation. Since the night that, that, that the present emperor slept with the sun goddess, the stock market in Japan has gone down. You sure it wasn't tied to the Shemitah? Never come up since. So that was my guest, C. Peter Wagner. Would you explain what you meant in the excerpt that we just heard? All right. Now, um, first of all, let me say that the occasion that I'm speaking about there is a very, very important occasion for the nation of Japan. And um, I also want to put a disclaimer in here that not everyone in the NAR would say what I have said. I'm speaking for myself and a fairly substantial group of people uh, with whom I closely associate. Now, our premise is that the ruler over the nation, the chief ruler over the nation of Japan is the sun goddess. And uh, the sun goddess takes many uh, adaptations, but in this case, the sun goddess is very much a part of the Shinto uh, religion in Japan. The name of the sun goddess is Amaterasu Omokami in their language. Japan is called the Nippon, that means the rising sun, the land of the rising sun. Their flag has the sun. And so 
the worship of the sun uh, and then the person of the sun goddess is very uh, strong in Japan, Japanese traditional history. Japan is much more controlled by Shinto than it is by uh, Buddhism. And so what happens is that after World War II, the uh, emperor Hirohito, when he signed a uh, surrender with um, MacArthur, agreed that the government and the religion, including the Shinto religion, would be separate. And the emperor declared that he was no longer a god. That was Emperor Hirohito. And that this actually opened the spiritual atmosphere of Japan for what, what are called the seven wonderful years of the growth of the Christian church in Japan. But then... Open the spiritual atmosphere? Yeah, this is all part of their warfare ideas. And the gradually forces came into being that reunited the uh, government with um, the uh, Shinto religion. So that when the emperor died and a new emperor came in, we entered the period of what's called the Daijosai ceremony. And the Daijosai ceremony is a part of of Shinto tradition in which um, when the emperor comes into power, the new emperor, they build a building in which the only piece of furniture is a couch. And uh, in the Daijosai ceremony, the emperor goes into that building and presumably has sex with the sun goddess. The sun goddess visits the emperor. And I don't know how that works between a spirit and a human, but I know it's it's the case because many, many people have uh, spirits of what deliverance ministers called uh, succubus and incubus, in which there is, there are sexual relationships between spiritual beings and humans. But she comes down and she and the emperor have some sort of relationship, whether it's a physical relationship like we humans are used to, or whether it's something near that or whatever it might be, it doesn't make any difference because the net result, as the Bible says, is that when a man and a woman have sex, they become one flesh. And so the emperor that from that point on becomes one flesh with the sun goddess and then gives the sun goddess permission to continue ruling Japan throughout his reign. Do you think that the... Um uh, tsunami or the nuclear meltdown in Japan is also connected to this ceremony or as you describe it to the fact that the emperor had sexual intercourse with the sun goddess? Yeah, well, that that happened many, many years ago and that created a spiritual atmosphere over Japan, which was an atmosphere ruled by the powers of darkness. The sun mm, created a spiritual atmosphere. The sun goddess is not a very nice lady. The sun goddess is a power of darkness, which is headed up by the kingdom of Satan. And so the sun goddess uh, wants natural disasters to come to Japan. Sometimes the hand of God, which is more powerful, will prevent them. And uh, when when he decides to prevent them and when he doesn't is far beyond anything that we can predict. But in this case, uh, God could have prevented that tsunami and the destruction, uh, but he didn't. He just took his hand off and allowed these natural forces to work. And and one of the background inf- pieces of information is Japan is under control of the sun goddess. So okay. a couple a couple of things I think I'm picking up here is one that you take literally this ceremonial aspect um, of the ceremony uh, in, in inducting a new or whatever the word is, uh, new uh, emperor, a, yeah. a, a new emperor. And also that you believe that the the figure that that is perceived as a goddess in the Shinto religion is actually sent there by the Satan of the Christian faith 
um, to delude people. Do I get that right? That's our, our premise. Now, Chuck Pierce, who's your successor at Global Harvest Ministries, has said now is a time to declare that old religious structures. Yeah, that's right. Chuck Pierce of Pierce's Ponderous Prophecies. Um, yeah, he has succeeded C. Peter Wagner as apostle. Structures in Japan will fall, and many will experience the freedom and reality of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So is your larger goal here to get Japan to turn away not only from uh, the Shinto faith, but also from Buddhism and follow Jesus Christ? Yes, it is. We believe that through the Christian faith, the blessings of heaven will come down upon whatever people accepts that. Now, that doesn't mean every Japanese has to become a Christian. But that means that the, the Christian faith, uh, we're looking for the Christian faith to grow in Japan to a point where it has some influence on society, which right now it doesn't. Okay, so we talked about that video is one thing that has put you in the news. And my guest is C. Peter Wagner. And the other uh, thing that has brought you into the news was Rick Perry's prayer rally, the response that was held in August. And uh, you and your wife, Doris, had endorsed the prayer rally. Um, and then seem to maybe withdraw your endorsement. So just clarify this for us. Did you endorse it? Did you uh, withdraw we, your yeah. endorsement? Go ahead. We uh, endorsed it. We never withdrew our endorsement. Okay. We were present in the audience. We didn't have any platform position, but we were there through the whole thing. Okay. And Texas Monthly reported that eight members of the rally's leadership team uh, are affiliated with the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, including... Alice Patterson, Don Finto, Mike Bickle, Doug Stringer, Lou Engel. Um, Alice Patterson, who is a, an apostle in the movement, and um, she was on stage with Rick Perry when he spoke, and she helped mobilize supporters for the rally. She said that the Democratic Party is a demon structure, and she figured that out while listening to Chuck Pierce speak. And Chuck Pierce is the person who replaced you after you retired as president of Global Harvest Ministries. Anyway, so Rick Perry was sharing the, the – she, she was next to Rick Perry when he spoke at his rally. Is Rick Perry's connection to the apostles an indication that he approves of your work or is your endorsement of him an indication that you uh, endorse him as well as a, as a presidential candidate? Yeah, I think you kind of get the idea. The, uh, the woman conducting the interview – yeah, she's said quite some amazing things. Yeah, Chuck Pierce has revealed that uh, the Democratic Party is a demon uh, structure. So this all plays into their theology of, you know, spiritual warfare. Uh, the problem is, is that this isn't exactly what uh, Ephesians 6 is teaching, like at all. And so... They get direct revelation. You got apostles. I mean, they've got all this new stuff that has never been heard before in Christianity at all uh, via their direct revelation. And they're saying some stuff that is just flat out alarming and uh, is not, you know, biblical Christianity at all. Not a cult? Yeah, I, you know, I'm beginning to think that they really are. All right, we're up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. We're going to listen to a lecture slash sermon from C. Peter Wagner on the Dominion Mandate. 
Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc. But simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Hopefully this is helping you you start to connect all the dots, if you would. Right. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Catch the Fire TV. This was broadcast in uh, 2010. Uh, it features C. Peter Wagner and a sermon lecture. I'm not sure what to call this thing. Uh, from Catch the Fire, and uh, we're going to be calling this the Dominion Mandate. And all I can say is just sit back, kind of take it in, and hopefully, like I said, all of the dots will be connected for you, and you can kind of begin to see the overall shape and warp and woof of what is the New Apostolic Reformation. You know, from their Dominion Mandate, their idea of warfare, and how that plays into their idea of prayer and deliverance and inner healing and all this kind of stuff. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is the person introducing C. Peter Wagner. Here we go. We encourage you to get to the bookstore and... Um Two of the books that are available are Warfare Prayer um, by Peter, Dr. Peter Wagner. And Warfare Prayer by Peter Wagner. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think War Room here. Uh, praying oh. with Power. Now, when we met with Dr. Wagner this morning, we said, can you tell us, you know, a bit about your products? And he said, well, what he's talking on has nothing to do with these books, all right? <laughs> but um, highly encourage you, Dr. Wagner. It's really good to have you with us today. And we pray you be blessed. So I have to mention two more things. Well, one more thing. By the way, this looks like it was at the Toronto uh, Airport Church, the home of the uh, Laughing Revival. It's a revival video is being shown this afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. in the fire hall, the Fruits of Revival. So you'll want to see that. Blessings to you. explain but i have received benefits because you know the benefits of toronto aren't just here in toronto the benefits of toronto are spreading have spread through the body of christ and i have received many benefits uh, from toronto so famous i on, on my way here i live in colorado springs and i laid over in chicago and i went to the red carpet club and i was, had my computer out i was doing some work in this man came up to me he said he's from uh, winnipeg and um he and his wife introduced themselves they're going to they're on their way to texas and this um man uh, said uh, you know we just talked like you do in an airport where are you going i said well i'm going to toronto I'm, I'm going to toronto oh he said you're going to the airport I said, yeah. <laughs> and i mean where else would a christian go <laughs> in toronto so i felt real good about 
coming here and about being here, and I want to greet all of you. Many of you before, and I know that uh, you're, you are going to, you have been receiving the blessings from this conference, and also those of you who are watching on the web. Just join right in, and if you have a chance, uh, you can quit um, eating lunch and washing the dishes for a few minutes and just uh, get a table and sit down and uh, take some notes. I know one of the advantages of watching something like this on the web is that you can dual task. And, you know, honestly, the blessings still come through. It's, uh, uh, the um, electronic age is really remarkable. Now, here's what I'm going to speak on this morning, okay? Well, you didn't even hear it yet. <laughs> I take that back because that was probably an intercessor who got already told what I was going to speak on. <laughs> but the, the, the title, of, <laughs> title of my talk is Our Dominion Mandate. Our Dominion Mandate. Okay? And so, I want to begin. Uh, I want to begin talking about this and sharing what God has revealed about this in just a minute. But what I- God has revealed, not in the Bible, via direct revelation to these people. Not quite ready, because <laughs> first of all, I've got to tell you this joke. <laughs> Uh, I, I purposely picked a religious joke this morning because, you know what? I hate the spirit of religion. And one thing that the spirit of religion hates is people laughing in church. So I'm going to tell a religious joke, and we're going to get to laugh in church. And this is, oh, this is so good. Okay, you ready for this? Say yes. Okay. Two priests decided to go to Hawaii on vacation. They determined to make it a real vacation by not wearing anything that would identify them as clergy. So as soon as the plane landed, they headed for a store and bought some really outrageous trunks and sunglasses and shirts and whatever. The next morning, they went to the beach dressed in their tourist garb. They were sitting on beach chairs enjoying a drink. When a gorgeous blonde in a bikini came walking straight toward them, they couldn't help but stare. As the blonde passed them, she smiled and said, Good morning, Father. Good morning, Father, addressing each of them individually. And then she went on by. They were both stunned. How in heaven's name did she know they were priests? The next day, they went back to the store, bought even more outrageous outfits. Once again, they settle on the beach in their chairs to enjoy the sunshine. After a while, the same gorgeous blonde came walking toward them. Again, she approached them and greeted each one individually. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Father. And she started to walk away. But one of the priests couldn't stand it any longer. And he said, just a minute, young lady. Yes, she replied. Look, he said, it's true that we're priests and we're proud of it. But I have to know, young lady, how in the world did you know that we're priests? Oh, Father, she said, it's me, Sister Helen. 
Okay. Which, which brings us to the Dominion mandate. <laughs> okay. Now, let, first of all, I want to look at that title, our, our Dominion mandate, all right? And, for, and, and think of the word mandate. Now, I know some of you are taking notes, and I want to make sure that you get uh, some of these things down. So now, uh, the word mandate I put there on purpose because the word mandate means an authoritative order or command. Now, this is an, this is a, an order from our commander-in-chief. So we got a, an order from Jesus himself. And it's for the whole body of Christ. Uh, a mandate, an order from, from God, really. It's not a suggestion. It's not good advice. It's an order. When anytime we get an order, we, can, we have two choices, right? We can choose to obey the order or choose to disobey the order. And God leaves that choice up to us. But what I'm saying is that what, I, what you're going to see about this is that it's, for those of us who are committed to the Lord, it's not a choice. It's a mandate. And we must obey it. Now, the word dominion. The word dominion means control. It means rulership. It means authority. It means to subdue. And it, it relates to society. It relates to the society in which we live. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth. Remember that? At- now notice, this, I mean, NAR folks and liberals, uh, you know, with the social gospel, they twist this petition of the Lord's uh, prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is, by the way, does not create some kind of a, a dominion mandate. In fact, I think a good way to uh, to understand this would be to uh, read it the way uh, Luther explains it in his small catechism. Let me read from the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, which is a petition uh, all of its own. And Luther asks the question, what does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. How does God's kingdom come, Luther asks? Well, the answer is God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word and lead godly lives here in time and then there in eternity. Third petition, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice that there's this is a separate petition. Um, what does this mean? Luther writes, he says, The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. How is God's will done? Yeah, well, the answer is God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is his good and gracious will. So, Notice what uh, C. Peter Wagner is doing here. He's taking these petitions, conflating them, and turning them into some kind of a dominion mandate, which they are not. These are petitions within the Lord's Prayer, not a dominion mandate. It is in heaven, so 
as things operate in the kingdom of heaven, we should see that manifestation here on the earth in the society uh, in which we live. In other words, what, what dominion means is that we're the head and not the tail of of our yeah um that those two petitions of the lord's prayer do not create some kind of dominion for us uh society we we it's it's a rulership and we rule as kings you know it says in revelation that god has made us kings and priests and uh so we have that responsibility now let me let me say it this way dominion mandate is another word for the great commission no it is not it absolutely is not. So the word great commission, but when you, when you see this, you'll see that taking dominion is uh, the great commission. And I'm going to read a verse that everybody knows from Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where Jesus, here's what Jesus said to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, he said, make disciples of what? Make disciples of all nations. Nations. That's, that's where people live together. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, geographical members of the United Nations. That doesn't necessarily mean that. It can be a people group within a nation. It can be a province. It can be a city. Uh, it, it can be a region. But wherever people are living together in society, that's what uh, in the Greek pantata ethne means. Not, um, not, and it also means nations, like the nation of Canada. I mean, is it, would it, could it be possible that Canada would be a nation counted as a nation, a disciple of Jesus Christ? I think it can. And um, that's what... Yeah, the thing is, is that you have to interpret that in light of the eschatological vision that we have in Revelation that there, at the end of time, there will be people from all tribes and nations. Yeah, he's basically turning this into, you know, you got to go and make disciples of all nations in the sense of, well, you got to convert the entire nation over and make them all disciples. That's not it at all. When you look at the eschatological vision in Revelation, you see that basically what that means is that uh, people from all nations will be in the eschaton uh, when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, big difference, by the way. That's what we're um, that's what we're talking about. Jesus to- always told us to preach the gospel of the kingdom, right? Okay. Now think of the word. Think of the word. Now keep in mind, the folks in the NAR see a difference between the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom. The word is it, it, two parts to the word kingdom, right? King. And dumb. I don't mean dumb in that sense of the word. I'm just talking about king and dumb. Because dumb, D-O-M, is the first three letters of dominion, right? And so, and so the, in, in every situation of dominion, there is a king. And Jesus told us to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, what does it mean? It means healing the sick. It means casting out demons. It means saving souls. Uh, no. It means multiplying churches, and it means transforming our society. So he's pouring all of that into the so-called gospel of the kingdom. Notice again the heavy emphasis on demonic spiritual warfare. And so that's why I call this talk 
our dominion mandate. That's, that's the meaning of where I want to go. Now, let's go to the Word and explore this. And what I'm going to do, I'm trying to simplify it as much as I can. I want to give you four, four points to understand our dominion mandate. Point number one. Dominion theology begins on the first page of the Bible. I'll say these points twice so those of you who are taking notes uh, can get them. And I encourage you on God TV and on the web also to uh, join in and write these points down. The first one is dominion theology begins on the first page of the Bible. You know, this, this saying that, there must be something significant about it. <laughs> and it begins with Adam and Eve. Now, God created the whole universe. I'm, I'm telling you, which of course, what you already know. Um, every time I get reports, and you, I'll bet you you do too, like new discoveries come from the Hubble telescope and the newspaper. Is it, do you ever get any discoveries that make you think the universe is getting smaller than you think? No. Every new discovery, it's, it's, it's absolutely unweak. Our minds cannot comprehend the universe, and God created all that. He created all these millions of galaxies. And um, yet, right now, we're not going to focus on the universe, but we're going to focus on a little speck of the universe called uh, planet Earth. And, um, and so God created planet Earth for a special reason, different from all those other things you see in the, um, in, in the galaxies. And so what did he do? He went about, he created land, he created gravity, he created light and darkness, he created water, he created an atmosphere with oxygen in it, he created temperature and plants and animals, and we could go on and on. He created all these things, and the last thing he created were human beings, but that was, that was the first thing he created in his image. And what does it mean to be created in God's image? What's different for, uh, between human beings and all the rest of God's creation? Well, there are a whole lot of things. But for one thing, God created us in his image so that we could communicate with God. That's number one on the list. We can, we, we can communicate with God. Number two, because we can communicate with God, we have we can have a personal relationship with God. Isn't that awesome? I know you're just saying, you know, what else is new? This is Toronto. I mean, <laughs> God is not father, he's daddy around here. And, uh, and you know about that personal relationship with God because uh, this is one of the best known centers in the whole Christendom for uh, br bringing people into that relationship as a as a friend and as a son or daughter and um so but but you can't do that with a monkey you can't do that with a with a salmon i mean you know it's, it's only human beings <laughs> that, that can that can, uh, that can do that all right now that leads me up to this other thing that makes us different god created us as free moral agents. I want you to get those three words down if you're taking notes. Free. Free moral agents. I'm going to bring this up again. 
because it's I'll tell you how important it is to be a, how not important how necessary it is for us to be free moral agents because love cannot be forced love you you cannot make anybody love you because if you try that and they say they do it can't be really be love why because love has to come from the heart of the person and so if it comes from the heart of the person, then there's a choice to love or not to love. And in, with all integrity, God had to create Adam and Eve as free moral agents if they were to love him because that love had to come from them. He couldn't create somebody who he, has, who he, was, forced, who he was forcing to love him. Now, God had a plan for what Adam and Eve should do once they were created and placed here on the earth. And that's why I say this comes, This starts in the first page of the Bible. And I'm going to quote, actually it's, it comes twice. It comes in Genesis 1.26 before he created Adam and Eve, and then it comes in 1.28 after he created Adam and Eve. And I'm going to choose the 28 after he created, but it's almost the same wording. Here it is in Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every living thing that moves on earth. He said, have dominion. Everybody say dominion. Dominion. That's right there on the first page of the Bible. And so God told Adam and Eve that this is what they were for. They were to take dominion over the earth. Now, God, God created the earth, and he established a government for the earth. And who was to govern? Adam was to govern. That means, that's another word for taking dominion. Adam was to govern all this creation that God had made. Now, let me tell you one more thing about Adam. Adam is a Hebrew word, and it's not just just, it is, but it's not just the first name of individuals. We probably have some people here or watching on God TV or watching on the web whose name is Adam, okay? And that's a good name. But the Hebrew name Adam means humankind. That's very important. You understand what I mean? It means the, he, God created Adam, called him Adam, but that was the word for the whole human race. So what am I saying? The whole human race was represented in Adam, which means you were there. And so was I. You know what? Every one of us in this room has some of Adam's DNA. Now that we know more about genetics, we were all there. So what God said to Adam, my point is, if he said it to Adam to take dominion, he's also saying it what? To us. Because we're his people, and, uh, and we, we were there. So this is what I mean by uh, the, the dominion mandate. But don't forget, Adam, I'll say this many times, Adam was a free moral agent. So he was created to take dominion, to run the government of the earth, but he had a choice, just like we do. He had, now get this one, Adam had authority to take dominion. He also had authority to give dominion away. Uh, 
Uh-huh. That's the way he was created. Which brings us to point number two. Okay. Point number two. The enemy has attacked the dominion mandate since day one. I see. So it's all about attacking the dominion mandate. Right. I repeat it. The enemy has attacked the dominion mandate since day one. Now, you may not always have thought of it this way, but Satan entered the Garden of Eden for one main reason. And that was to usurp the dominion over the world that God had given to Adam. And you have a biblical text that says that? Sometimes we dilute that idea and we say that Satan entered the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam to sin. That's true. But that's only a small fraction of what Satan was really after. Satan was after the dominion that God had given to Adam. Now, let me explain a little bit about Satan. Which you know, but I'm just putting it together for you. Satan was created by God, and he was created as an angel of light. I mean, God created a lot of angels, and Satan, and, and all angels aren't the same. There are some angels better than others. And God created Satan one of the best. He was one of the top angels. And um, he was an angel, because he was an angel of light, that's why he bears the name Lucifer as well. And so he was, he, I mean, talk about worship. He was one of the greatest worship leaders that heaven had. So he, God created Satan, and it was, Satan was good until... Satan decided to go into rebellion. Bad decision. He gathered gathered some other angels and tried to overthrow God's government. (laughs) Well, didn't work. So as a result, God cast Satan and a bunch of other angels out of heaven. He got rid of them, as far as heaven is concerned. And some scholars think there's maybe a third of all the angels uh, went out with Satan. Okay, let's analyze this a little more. Satan once, when he was first created, he had power and authority. He was created a powerful being, and he had authority. When he was cast out of heaven to the earth, he still had his power, because part of who he was, but he didn't have any more authority. Because, see, the only way, the only source of his authority was God. He had his power, but no authority. Let me just, you may not have heard that expression before, so let me just try to explain, illustrate what I mean. How can you have power and no authority? I'll I'll give you just a a home-type illustration. I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, our our, we live in a place called Black Forest. Our home is uh, 7,300 feet above sea level. And, uh, and in fact, we live in the woods. Uh, fortunately, we live in the woods so far in the woods, my cell phone doesn't work at home. And that gives me a lot of peace and quiet. <laughs> and um, um, 
but uh, you know we have we have for example we have bears, and uh, I, I I like uh, that's a whole long story, but I like livestock and Doris my my wife Doris and I um, like llamas because we served as missionaries in Bolivia, which is the home of the llama, and so we have llamas. Well, we had llamas. We had we had a bunch of them until a bear came and killed one. And then for some reason, a whole bunch of others died. The veterinarian couldn't figure out what they died of, but they, they, I think they needed inner healing. So <laughs> they died of something, except one. One got left. His name is George. So we still have George. I fed him the day before he came. And, um, and anyway, uh, uh, we live in an environment like that, way out in the woods, see? So I have a gun. I mean, I have a 20-gauge shotgun, and I know how to use that shotgun. And I keep that shotgun loaded at all times. There's no use having a gun that's not loaded. I can tell you that right now. And um, I keep that gun, it's about six steps away from my bed. You know, and... (laughs) I mean, Colorado's Wild West. We even have what's called a make-my-day law in the state of Colorado. If anybody comes into your house, forces the way into your house, you can kill them, and you will not be taken to court. I mean, that's the law in the state of Colorado. So you better watch out. I've got my gun, and, um, <laughs> so, and, I, and I take that gun out in the woods where I am, and I can sh- when I have that 20-gauge shotgun in my hand, I have a lot of power. And bang! I mean, I can I I can use that shotgun, and um, all I want out in the woods. But if I take that same shotgun into the city of Colorado Springs, get it? I still have the power, right? But I can't shoot it because I don't have what? I don't have the authority. I cannot I cannot use that power. So notice he's not really doing exegesis here. He's really just kind of putting together a theology that he thinks sounds reasonable, um, but he's not doing this using biblical texts. In the city of Colorado Springs, only law enforcement officers can do something like that. So that's how you can have power and no authority, which, is, which was the condition of uh, Satan. Now, I'm spending quite a bit of time analyzing, uh, analyzing um, Satan here because this is, this, this is very important. Uh, it's important. To, I'll bring it up again, but it's important to understand our enemy. And uh, when we, when w- think of Satan, since he had the power, no authority. What would he want logically more than anything else? Authority. He wanted authority to go with the power that he already had. And not only that, he wanted to get authority, and he wanted to maintain authority. Now that's why Satan approached Adam and Eve. He approached Adam and Eve because he knew something. He knew again, biblical text, please. How are you figuring this out about the devil? Can you read his mind? That Adam had the authority to take dominion, and he also had the authority to give dominion away. Why? Because he was a free moral agent. And Satan knew this. So Adam could obey God or he could obey Satan. He had the choice right there. We read about it in the in, in the in the Bible. And Adam made the worst possible choice. He gave his dominion to Satan. And that put him and us, don't forget, we were there. It put him and us under 
the dominion of Satan. From the, from the first page of the Bible. Now, we who live a couple thousand years after Christ, we, we really have a difficult time understanding how miserable the world used to be before Jesus came. We can read about it in history books, and, and I try to do that. And, and um, life, life, was, was life on planet Earth was a miserable, miserable life. Wars were normal. They weren't just something that make headlines in the paper. Uh, that wars were normal. Well, I mean, even the Bible says it was springtime, the time the kings did what? They went to war. It was, just, it was just normal. And not only that, but war was extremely brutal. I mean, we hear brutal things today, but it, 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 and it was just part of the, the daily life of war. I just photocopied a, a, some verses from the Bible just to... You don't have to go any further than that to see how brutal war was. Doesn't even matter where it is. I'm just going to let's see. Well, I'll read three verses. I just took this from the Bible because it's, you find it there. You don't even notice it, where it is, <laughs> Jeremiah. But it says, "This listen." The Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. When they captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on them. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. You get that scenario? He had to sit there while his sons were killed, and he was watching them die by, by demand. Yeah, right. And then, not only that, the king of Babylon uh, killed the sons of Zedekiah, and the king also, no, verse 7, moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes. And bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And, it, and that's, that's bad enough. It, it, wars in those days were even worse than that. That's what, that's what people did as a matter of just, living, uh, of just living their life. A huge percentage. I've never seen any. Maybe some of you have seen any statistics. But a huge percentage of the human race were slaves. They were owned by other human beings. And could be bought and sold or could be um, raped or could be uh, beaten without any kind of, uh, of retribution. And um, I, I, I would imagine from what I have read, maybe some of you are historians, probably over half of the human race were slaves. I'm talking about the, around the world. We have plenty of slavery today. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a big blemish. And Well, I'll come to that later, but... Uh, and it was there. Human sacrifice? Human sacrifice was common because who were people worshiping? They were worshiping Satan and this whole army of, of, of demons because he had dominion and Satan wants blood. And, um, and you may have read about the Aztecs in Mexico where they had these ceremonies where for a period of time in these pyramids, the blood of virgins would flow down the pyramid so much that it was like a stream of water. I mean, it didn't stop. They, they were sacrificing so many virgins that that was their point for uh, for Satan and um, and, um, and 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 all their uh, demons. Life expectancy was short. I mean, if you lived to be thirty years of age, you had lived a good life. It was very very short. Women, women, in many cases, animals were treated better than women. Women were women were not treated by males as normal. Uh, human beings 
You've read about travel was life-threatening. You had to take an army with you to travel from one place to the other, else you would get robbed and beaten and, and lose all your goods because there were professional thieves that were really good at it, and they could only be stopped by force. I mean, I, I, we could go down and down uh, that list. And everything that I mentioned here, and I could mention more, gives great pleasure to Satan. He loves that, everything I, everything I said. And the result of this is, that take how think now together how the Bible describes Satan. The Bible says he is the God of this age. Now I didn't make that up. It says he is the prince of the power of the air. Even Jesus called Satan, quote unquote, the ruler of this world. I know some people say, you know, you shouldn't talk that much about Satan. Well, those are people who never want to go to war. But I'll tell you, one of the first laws of warfare is to know your enemy. You're never going to win a war unless you understand your enemy. And so we need to know as much, have as much intelligence as we possibly can about Satan if we're going to join the army of God and if we're going to defeat Satan. If we're going to sit back and let somebody else do it, then... If we are going to defeat Satan, I thought Jesus defeated Satan. Whoa. Don't worry about Satan because he's not a bit worried about you. But if you want to join the army of God, then, and take dominion, then it's very, very important. One other example is Jesus' third temptation. Which you remember, that's the temptation where he was taken up on the mountain. Satan took him up on the mountain. And the Bible says that Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He didn't show him 75% of the kingdoms of the world. It says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, Jesus standing there, Satan is able supernaturally to show him all the kingdoms of this world. And he said, Jesus, all you got, I'll give you these kingdoms if you just worship me. I'm not going to go into the other details of the temptation. That's enough. Because Jesus never questioned Satan's right to offer him those kingdoms of the world. Why? Because he was the ruler. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And Jesus, of course, made a, uh, didn't yield to Satan. But my main point is that Jesus recognized Satan's dominion that he got when He got, got it. In the Garden of Eden. That's what he went in the Garden of Eden for, is to get that authority over, over the earth. So, God's plan for Adam had not yet materialized, but his purpose for creating Adam and the human race never changed. Which brings us to point number three. Point number three is the second Adam permanently reversed history. The second Adam uh, permanently reversed history. Now think about this with me. And I'll, I'll bet you that I'm accurate on this, that world history has changed 180 degrees twice. Not once, not three times. World history has changed 180 degrees Twice. It changed 180 degrees when Adam gave his dominion to Satan. Was that God's plan? No. But 
It changed the other 180 degrees when Jesus came to retake dominion and turn history back around to God's original plan. Now, it's not finished yet. That's one of the reasons I'm up here teaching this, because I'm, I'm leading up to a challenge, as you can well imagine. But uh, it's not finished yet. But we're clearly heading in the right direction. And we're on the winning side. Sometimes, you know, you might say, well, we've got to set back here and there. It doesn't matter. We're on the winning side. Okay. Now, think of this. Why did Jesus come? Why did he leave heaven and come to earth? Well, there are many reasons, but here's one that says right in the Bible. He says, for this purpose, the Son of Man was manifested. For this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil, which I've just been describing. Jesus came to destroy those works of the devil. That's in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, if you're, um, if you're jotting down. No, it's also... So notice every passage ripped from context, and we've got some weird things that he's put in there. So apparently the dominion mandate never changed, and that's what God wants us to do. So we got to go all the way back to Genesis. We got to conquer. We got to destroy. We got a war against the devil, and we need to conquer him, and we need to take dominion back. That's really the implications of what he's saying, but that's really not what the Bible teaches. Down Luke 19, verse 10. Luke chapter 19, verse number 10. You know this verse. I'm going to play with it for a second here. Okay? It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, I don't know if you ever thought of this, but there's a difference between pastoral preaching and apostolic preaching. Listen carefully to this distinction. And... And uh, there's a difference between a pastoral interpretation of this verse and an apostolic interpretation of this verse. Because pastoral preaching, and I'm not saying we don't need pastoral preaching. We need plenty of it. But pastoral preaching stresses Jesus' death on the cross as paying the penalty for our sins so that we can go to heaven. And that's good preaching. I tell you what, if you, get any, if you ever got time, analyze Billy Graham's sermons, every one of them says that. And um, so that's the pastoral interpretation of this. However, let me give you an apostolic view of the same verse because... Ap- so apparently, uh, who knew? You're supposed to interpret God's word first pastorally and then apostolically. Yeah, this is not uh, you know, the uh, historical grammatical method here. This is something very dubious. Apostolic preaching takes the verse literally. Now, see, you're questioning in your mind, what do I mean? It takes the, ver- the, the verse literally. The uh, pastoral preaching reads Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who were lost. You know what the verse says? It says that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? Dominion. The dominion. So Jesus came to uh, seek and uh, grab dominion. That's not the referent that Jesus is referring to there in Luke 19. That's why Jesus came. I'm telling you, turning history around. I'm not saying people don't need to get saved. Don't misquote me on that. Get that on God TV. Don't uh, say that I don't believe in preaching the gospel of salvation. 
I am saved by the blood of Jesus. You know? But I'm giving the, 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 the bigger picture of why Jesus came. Uh, some of you may know Apostle Joe Matera from New York. He has New York City. He has a, a book. Uh, Apostle Joe Matera. Uh, apo- there are no apostles on the planet. Let me read to you the uh, biblical qualifications for an apostle. You can find these in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, after, um, the, well, after Jesus ascends to heaven, uh, you know, the disciples decide that they've got to fill the spot of, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the apostolic offices that was left vacant by none other than Judas. Here's what it says. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, wasn't all about 120. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Now we're on 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled by which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadalma, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So in order to be an apostle, you have had to have been alive and there with the the apostles while Jesus was on his earthly, doing his earthly ministry from the time of his baptism by John the Baptist until the time of his ascension into heaven, and you must be a witness of the resurrection. That is the normative requirements for an apostle. Ain't nobody got that. We continue. Ruling in the gates. And um, he's got a better book out now called Kingdom Revolution. I mean, it's, it's, they're both good, but Kingdom Revolution has got more meat in it, including what he had in the other book. So, uh, so, but that first book, I took this quote from. Now, listen, when I read this quote from Joe Matera, you're going to hear a little different thing than you usually hear, okay? He says, here's what Joe says, the main purpose of Jesus dying on the cross was not that so you can go to heaven. The main purpose of his death was so that his kingdom can be established in you. As a result, you can exercise kingdom authority on earth and reconcile the world back to him. What? Whoa. Wow. That's just blasphemously awful and bad and not even biblical. Wow. That's a huge statement. Yeah, hugely heretical. And um, so, that's you know, he says, reconcile the world back to him. Let's, let's just take a look for a moment at reconciliation. That's, that's how does, let me explain how God the Father sees this. Or like we say around here, how Daddy sees this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> it says in Colossians 1, and this is verse 19 and 20, For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness shall dwell, and by him, now him is capital H, that means Jesus, 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth, get that, or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, the pastoral view of that would be all things means all people, all individuals. But the apostolic view of that would be, when it says to reconcile all things on earth, it would mean to reconcile his creation. It means social transformation. It means yeah, false dichotomy there. Um, even those who understand uh, that you know the message of the gospel and preach the gospel would understand that all things also includes the entire creation, uh, which will be manifested at the consummation of time with the death and resurrection of this time space continuum. Yeah, it means changing the society in which we live. Uh, no. That's not what that means. It does not mean change the society in which we live. It's talking about the creation. Now, that's God's, that's the Father's desire. It says so right there in the Bible. Uh, No, it doesn't say that in the Bible as far as societies are concerned. How is this to be accomplished according to God's plan? Now, I'm going to, I'm going to say this now. I'm going to. Uh, even uh, underline it a little later. But uh, write down 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. Okay, so it's God's plan to reconcile all things. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus paid the price for reconciliation but God gave us the task of making it happen. I'm going to come, I want to come back to that. In fact, that's the way I, I, just, I just want to make sure that uh, we get that, that across. I like the way... Yeah, that text makes it clear that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That means that we are to preach the gospel. That's what it's referring to there, that we are to announce that you know God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. That's the idea of the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. Uh, Kong He of Singapore. I don't know if, uh, how, how many of you know um, Kong He. Several of you do. Yeah, Kong He. Uh, sounds like he's going to be going to prison in October. Yeah. I'm, notice here, Kong He is part of the New Apostolic Reformation. That's right. He's NAR. He's got one of the hottest churches in in. Well, I was going to say Asia. You got one of the hottest churches in the world called City Harvest Church there, and I go there from time to time to minister. I, I mean, it's so I, I, I'm just stalling because I'm just figuring out how much I should not say about City Harvest. I mean, I could spend a long time telling you about City Harvest, but the last time I was there, um, I had to preach. Four times. Well, the time before I was there. I mean, he, he makes me preach four times, see? And there's a small sanctuary. Then they also meet in the expo center. The small uh, worship center only seats 2,000, but the um, expo center seats 8,000. And so Saturday night, I have to go from one to the other, and then Sunday morning from the other to the one. And uh, they, they're about three quarters an hour on the other side of Singapore. 
So it's, it's quite a task. And he doesn't let you preach the same, doesn't let me preach the same sermon. Twice. Why? It's because when I leave, he wants a CD set that he can sell. See? I mean, he's an entrepreneur as well as a pastor. He's a... He, uh, I'm going to talk... I'm going to talk more about that church this afternoon when I get in the, um, in, in, in the workshop. Anyway, come this afternoon, hear more. But here's what he says. I'm, I'm quoting Kong He. I, I'm, I don't forget what the subject is. Subject is uh, reconciliation, right? And, and reconciling the world, the dominion of the world back to God. Okay, here's what Kong He says. Unfortunately, yeah, again, Scripture does not say reconciling dominion of the world back to God. He's stuck that into the text using out-of-context verses and eisegesis. Many of us hold on to this mentality that since sin has already damaged the world, what's important now is to rescue as many people as we can from the wreckage. One preacher called this the lifeboat theology looking at the world as if, it is, as if it is the ship Titanic. Then he says the correct Christian worldview is never the lifeboat theology, but the ark theology. Noah's ark not only saved people, it preserved all of God's creation. It brought everything back out to restore the earth. Every church must be like Noah. Yet Second Peter makes it clear that all of this is going to burn. All of the elements. All of, yeah, it's this time time space continuum is going to die and then be resurrected. Drawing people in for discipleship, then sending them out to restore the world. I agree with that. And uh, so apparently we got to go and restore the world. So the Dominion Mandate is all about bringing the Garden of Eden back. Taking dominion, if you would. Uh, and and this, is, this then brings me to the last point, which is number four. Okay. Jesus, and I told you I was coming back to this. Jesus delegated establishing his kingdom to us. I want to make that a whole point now. Jesus delegated establishing his kingdom to us. Think of Jesus uh, training his disciples. Now, he specifically, purposely trained his disciples to take charge when he left, right? We all know that. He knew he was going to leave, and he trained his disciples to do that. And Jesus' last words on the earth were not the words on the cross like, like some people pretend they are, because he came back. He was back here for 40 days, right? And, but his last recorded words on the face of the earth uh, were Acts 1.8 which you know, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Then pff, cloud took him up. He was gone. Now, that's, there must be something really significant about the very last words that he chose to say. And he said to his disciples, you will be my Witnesses. Everybody say witnesses. You know, you are a witness. You're supposed to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Now, what do witnesses do? Witnesses speak and act on behalf of Jesus. And there's a lot of things that that means. I mean, we got a, had a message yesterday from Bill Johnson in the, 
I think it was yesterday. Seems like. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. Bill Johnson also was part of the NAR. Afternoon. And um, uh, I mean, it wasn't in this. You didn't see it on God TV, but uh, we had a, a other meeting and he gave a whole message on to act on behalf of Jesus means to do miracles. And you can prove that from the Bible. I mean, he did. And I, that that's that sunk into my soul. I mean, that's that's part of being what a witness. If you're a witness of Jesus Christ, you act on his, you do what? So if you're not performing miracles, you're just a bad witness. Would do. Now, Jesus, when Jesus came, and you know this, he went around doing so, and he was after his baptism and temptation, he went around and uh, healing the sick, doing miracles. And, um, but he was, he, he, he didn't go directly, but he meandered around ministering, and then he ended up in Nazareth, which was his hometown which he actually probably was aiming for, and uh, finally he got to Nazareth. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus got to Nazareth, he went into the synagogue and gave his first public speech. Think about that. Uh, Any of you who are preachers, you know, you prepared a lot for your first public speech. And I imagine that Jesus prepared his first public speech really well. And actually what Jesus did was that he set out his agenda. I mean, he was beginning his ministry, sent out his agenda. Now, his agenda was not only for him, was it? It was also for his witnesses. Okay? And so it's a good thing to go back there in Luke 4 and read what Jesus said. Here's what he said in Luke 4, 18, in the synagogue of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What was his first point? To preach the gospel to the poor. Do you think he thought that through? Or was it just an accident that that turned up there? I can't believe it was an accident. I believe that preaching the gospel to the poor is the first item in Jesus' agenda. Now, question, what is the gospel? The meaning of the word gospel is good news. Think this through with me now. To preach good news to the poor. Now, if you were poor, what's the best news you could possibly receive? Now, here's the problem. Yes, Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. But we are all poor, spiritually. Uh Uh-huh. Now we got the, the nub. Yeah, this is just such a mess. Very akin to what the social gospel people do with Jesus' first sermon. You got it. You're not going to be poor anymore. You're going to prosper, right? That's what Jesus was saying. Give the good news to the poor. And I'm not going to go into this in detail in anything I'm going to teach here, but I teach a whole course on this, but if I, if, 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 I, if I did get into the detail about what it means when we talk about transformation of society, what are the, what are the signs? How do we know? How can we, how can we give sociological tests to find out if what we're preaching, what we're doing as witnesses to Jesus is actually working in our society? There are ways and means to do that. But those of us who are in that, and we, we have a common consensus now that we didn't have, well, probably less than 10 years ago, that the, that the major, the major measurable sign that a people group or a nation or whatever is transformed, 
past tense, not being transformed, but past tense transformed, is the eradication of systemic poverty. Get that word systemic. I didn't say systematic. Systemic, which means poverty comes from what? It comes from the social system. Is that God's plan? Did the social system create poverty? No. Jesus put the first thing on his agenda to get rid of that. So we can tell God's, uh, you know, taking back dominion through us when, you know, poverty is uh, starting to get conquered. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, what about, yeah, this is, again, the social gospel people twist God's word in a very similar way here. It's good news to the poor that there's no poverty. And transformation, one of the signs of transformation is the eradication of systemic poverty. And um, we got plenty of systemic poverty in the United States that we need to eradicate. In fact, there are only two nations in the world. Well, let me just, uh, let me just pause, just give you another statement here. The opposite of systemic poverty would be systemic prosperity. Isn't that right? Which means that the social system produces what? Prosperity. Normally, people are prosperous in systemic prosperity. That is the will of God. If you don't believe it, read Deuteronomy 28. I mean, you've got two parts. Well, I won't get on this. But um, the, Bible, the Bible is very clear on this, okay? So that's, that's what we're looking for. There are many steps getting to that. But eradication of systemic, or I mean, the production of, the, uh, of uh, systemic prosperity. There are only two nations in the world that have systemic prosperity. Japan and Singapore. And uh, Japan is having some troubles right now. but I wouldn't call Japan a, a Christian nation. In the earlier uh, segment, uh, we noted that apparently um, the emperor of Japan has sex with the uh, sun goddess. So how would they have systemic prosperity there in such a pagan nation? Um, I don't understand how God has restored dominion there in Japan. I don't think it's gone off the list, but Singapore isn't. When you're born in Singapore, your destiny, just by being a Singaporean, is to prosper. In their equivalent of what we have as a pledge to the flag, they actually use the word prosperity. They speak out, all citizens of Singapore, it doesn't matter whether Christians or Muslims or what they are, speak out prosperity for their nation. And you know, words make a difference. And they speak it day after day. And Singapore is has systemic Prosperity. So, all I'm saying is it can be done. It's interesting that neither Japan nor Singapore was brought about by uh, overt Christian action. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't matter because the kingdom of God is really bigger than we think. Oh, so the kingdom of God extends to Japan and Singapore, even though they're not really Christian nations. What on earth is this man talking about? Where This is not what God's word teaches. And, um, that is a value of the kingdom of God. All right. Now, every, then Jesus went on to say other things. I got, I got stuck with that poverty thing. But Jesus went on to say other things like heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, so that liberate those who are oppressed, preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Every single word of that agenda upsets the devil. He doesn't like anything in that. 
really, the devil's upset when Japan has systemic poverty eliminated and they're now systemically prosperous. Uh, and yet, how many of them are going to hell? Oh, the devil hates that. Yeah, yeah. This, this is absurd. Since the Garden of Eden, he had taken dominion, but Jesus brought a new kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. You don't read about the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. You only read about the kingdom of God after Jesus came, when Jesus came and after he, he came. So since that day, Jesus has been using his witnesses. Jesus isn't here. He's been using his witnesses to build his church, to advance his kingdom, and to reconcile more and more of creation to himself. He's been doing this for 2,000 How do you reconcile more and more of creation? What what is he talking about? Who's doing the reconciling? And the devil says in Revelation 12, 12, for the devil's come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. I don't know how short his time is. I mean, I wish, you know, a lot of of people have taken guesses. I don't know how short his time is, but I can tell you one thing for sure. It's shorter today than it was yesterday. (laughs) It's just mathematical. (laughs) But he has great wrath because he's not going to be there forever. He has a short time. Satan has been gaining ground. Excuse me. Satan has been losing ground. I should say I'm thinking of Jesus. Satan has been losing ground uh, for 2,000 years. And, um, but I believe the process is about to speed up really rapidly so i'll say something prophetically now you can write that down because that's very unusual no one has no one has ever confused me with a prophet but i can still prophesy you know by accident once in a while and uh i think this is prophetic okay so check it out satan will lose more ground in the next hundred years than he lost in the first 2,000. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, it is speeding up. Uh, Yeah, so apparently all this Dominion recapturing thingy is, oh, it's accelerating. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, man, I envy those. I envy you younger people. You're going to see this. I mean, you who are in your 50s and 60s. uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See <this? laughs> I got my 80th birthday coming up in August. <laughs> but the year 2001 began the second apostolic age. I just want to give you a view of what some of the things that are happening. This is So 2001, beginning of the new apostolic age, hogwash. Speeding up. And um, the government of the church is now in place. I mean, there's a critical mass of the government of the church in, in place. And now the body of Christ is aligning with apostles and prophets. Until it aligned with apostles and prophets, we had to go slow in taking back dominion. Now that the government's in place, and why do, you, why do we need a government in the church? Because Satan has had a government. That's how he's made all, this prog- all the progress he did. And it takes a government to overthrow a government. You can't overthrow a government without a government. 
Now the body of Christ. Is- yeah, now that we have apostles and prophets in the new second apostolic age, well, we now have a, a church government, and now we can take over the government. You know, we can go to war against the government of the devil. Uh, really? And where does the Bible? No, the Bible doesn't teach any of this. Um, the government. So we're equipped. And this war has two major fronts. Now, I can preach whole message on each one of them. So I'll refrain from that because it's getting to be lunchtime. But uh, I'll, I'll just mention the two fronts and then quit. Okay. <laughs> Number one is a spiritual front. Now, here's what the Bible says. It says we must stand against the wiles of the devil. That's, just, that, that's not being passive. That's an active verb. We must stand against the wiles of the devil. And what are his wiles? His wiles are whatever, whatever it takes to take back dominion, to get his authority back. Those are his wiles. And so this means spiritual warfare. You know, the, the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And this, this, is, this, is, spirit, this is the spiritual front. Now, um, these two books that Darren showed you, are um, books of mine that, that deal with this. Uh, first of all, this, this book, Praying with Power, we learned a lot about the, the decade in which the body of Christ learned more about prayer than any other decade in history, I dare say, uh, was the 90s. And, um, and, and just so we don't forget the 90s, this book is out called Praying with Power. And this has, this has one chapter on each of the aspects of prayer that we learned about, one being one being spiritual warfare. But there are other aspects of prayer that we learned about tonight. We don't want to forget. So that's praying with power. But uh, this book um, has just been has just come out. Actually it's two of my books in one called Warfare Prayer. This is a great book on spiritual warfare. And besides, there are uh, at the end, there's uh, there there was what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, 21 questions that a lot of people ask about spiritual warfare and what the Bible says. So these are two, these are two resources that I'm glad have come out. They were, uh, they were first written in the, in, in the 90s, but I'm glad that they're out now for good so that um, you can use those for this spiritual front. Now this- mm, yeah, so we uh, no, notice again, heavy emphasis on spiritual warfare, warring, you know, now that the government, uh, the, the church government has been reestablished in this second apostolic age and you know warfare 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 uh huh and it's not what like i said ephesians 6 is talking about we continue is the natural front and this is the new cutting edge edge for this generation we, we must not forget the spiritual it won't work without the spiritual but the spiritual was the cutting edge now we're in it now the natural is the cutting edge for this generation and we're we're continuing to learn more and more about this because God is revealing powerful concepts. I mean, one concept that he has revealed that is just absolutely uh, changing, mind-changing, and action-changing is what's called the 7M mandate about the seven mountains of society. So if we're going to transform society, there are seven mountains we've got to transform, and that's what I'm going to teach on in the, over, in the overflow room this afternoon, the 7M, I'm going to call it the 7M template or the 7M mandate. And I won't go into that now because I'm going to teach it later. And then another concept that God is giving us for taking back dominion is the church in the workplace. 
So notice God is giving us concepts right now, apparently, d- via direct revelation. The, 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 the church does not, there's not just people who meet on Sunday. The church is here seven days a week, and I'll talk about that tomorrow morning at this same time. So I'll make sure that we get that. And then if there's a church in the workplace, another thing that I'll, I'll, I'll stress tomorrow, if there's a church in the workplace, the church is out there. There must be apostles in the workplace. This is one of the missing links we have, everybody, until we activate those apostles, not put them there. God's already given them the gift to apostle. In the so we have to activate these apostles. Uh-huh. Yeah. Again, not found in Scripture. But we must recognize, activate, and empower those people if we're going to uh, transform society. And then, we, then God is showing us another concept is the crucial role of wealth. The church has been under a spirit of poverty. I mean, the spirit of poverty has dominated the church ever since the Middle Ages. And we can trace back through the monastic movement. And um, uh, the church, I'm talking about the church in general, has been under a spirit of poverty. This is not the will of God. This is the will of the enemy. And the church needs to shift from that to get under a, for out, out from under a spirit of poverty to get into a spirit of prosperity. I believe that Christians should be rich. And I'm not, you know, you can say, you preaching the prosperity gospel? Sure. I never even met Kenneth Hagin or Kenneth Copeland. I don't. Yeah, so he's another prosperity guy. Okay, Christians are supposed to be rich. It's not God's will for you to be poor. So what's wrong with you, Christian? But I'm. But but the will of God is that we should be rich and that we should have abundance, abundance to 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 selfishly spend it on us. No, abundance so that we can we can further the kingdom of God. And it's going to take it's going to take wealth. I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing. We have all observed the rapid advance of Islam. You know, one of the things Islam has that we don't have? Money. I'm talking about, I'm not ta- I'm, I'm talking about in the hands of the Islamic religion, there is huge amounts of money. They wouldn't be doing what they're doing now if they didn't have money. And we stand up in our pulpit and say money doesn't count. Yes, it does. It's, we're not going to transform society without it. Well, anyway, that's a... Next time I come, I'll talk. So apparently we don't need the word of God. No, we need money. Right, yeah. That's what's going to transform society. Not God's word, but money. (laughs) So this is an enormous assignment. Are you ready to come up and help me close this? Because I want to ask you a question. Now you know the assignment. And my question to you, are we up to it? Are we up to this assignment? Can we meet the challenge? Or are we just going to sit back and enjoy God and hope things turn out okay? We can, we can make the choice. Why? Because we're free moral agents. But what I want you to do is to think about the mountain that God has placed you in, the segment of society that you're in, and make your commitment to God that you will do whatever happens to transform the segment of society where God put you. Don't worry about where other people are. It's where you are. That's where it's going to begin, to transform that segment of society. So will we retake dominion? Say yes. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what we better do. Stand up. Now let me ask that question again. Will we retake dominion? Yes. Will we retake dominion? Yes. Yes. I want, you to, I want us to pray together. Follow me in this prayer. You know it, but follow me in this prayer. 
Our Father in Heaven. Uh, we're done. We yeah. So wow. Um, that was frightening um, on a lot of levels. Uh, why? Uh, because he wasn't handling any biblical text correctly, and this is an alternate um, gospel. This is a different uh, approach to scripture, and uh, totally different Great Commission. Not the Great Commission given to us by Jesus. You know, it makes me again wonder. I'm wondering out loud if in uh, Revelation 17, the seven mountains that are talked about there, I wonder if these are them. You know, it just ultimately creeps me out. What did you think? I hope you found this informative. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, the name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>